and welcome to yet another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by another guy. Who are you? Robert White. Uh, glad to be here, David. Deja freaking boo. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Um, so Robert was uh, with us uh, to uh, talk Pascal's wager. I'm so sorry, Robert, that that was your first experience to Skeptics and Seekers, since Pascal's wager is a losing proposition every time. Well, I was going in not planning on fully defending it anyway, so I got to just eat my popcorn and enjoy the show and jump in where I wanted. Well, apparently Teddy the Bear went into it uh, not uh, prepared to defend it either, so you were... (laughs) You were in good company. Um, and uh, the, af- uh, the after show conversation we had, uh, I uh, I loved that. Hey, guys, if you have not listened to that second uh, podcast we did, it was about an hour of us rambling, but it was great ramble. It was I agree. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. So um, today, uh, the main event, uh, this is the one that Robert actually signed on for, um, we are going to be talking about Robert's Rule. He'll tell you what that is in a minute. Uh, And uh, we'll also be uh, talking about uh, my idea of deal breakers and how these two completely separate issues are, in fact, the same thing. It's kind of like two shows in one. Right now, we're going to get started. So uh, the first thing I want to do is uh, just introduce, for those of you uh, who were under a rock last week and didn't hear the show. Um, Robert, who the heck are you, and why should we give a damn? I, um, I'm i a software engineer in Brooklyn. I grew up a Christian, and sort of with somewhat what would be considered fundamentalist beliefs, or, or just very strict views of the Bible and creation and all that sort of stuff. And um, I ended up being a computer science major, engineer, and I just and I've always been very philosophically minded. So I went through a long process of deconstructing my beliefs to the point of really everything was on the table um, to to stay or go, and eventually slowly built up my faith. But now I I really enjoy especially focusing on epistemology, which is how all of this. Uh, the idea for the show came about and uh, figuring out how to kind of navigate these dialogues with very opposing beliefs and that sort of thing. So my blog and podcast is at robertlwhite.net and I focus a lot on epistemology so far and I also interview some atheist friends and that sort of thing. Cool. All right. Hey, uh, do you mind if I ask you a couple of uh, questions in that journey? Because uh, that's a lot of information densely packed, and I yeah. wasn't really listening. Um, <laughs> sure. So, no, really, I'm just a stand-in for the listener who wasn't really listening. I was, of course, paying close attention. Of course. Uh, right. So you said you had a This is a guy who, who admitted going to the bathroom <laughs> in the middle of the show last time. I'm, Listeners, just keep that in mind. I'm in the bathroom now. Um <laughs> That's not true. Um, so, Robert, uh, you said you come from a fundamentalist background. What I mean by that is, um, I, I, I'm—I don't know—that that is such a loaded word. But certainly, from the outside, 
uh, a lot of the beliefs that I grew up with would be considered that. I mean, the main thing I'm talking about is like a strict view of inerrancy of uh, the biggest thing that is associated with that, that I, my family held is young earth creationism is that the earth is 6,000 years old answers in Genesis. I grew up watching Ken Ham videos. I wrote, uh, I was freaking homeschooled. That gives me some cred right there. Uh, (laughs) I, I, um, I wrote a uh, creation versus evolution. We were required to creation versus evolution paper for high school biology at my homeschool high school. Um, yeah. So am I digging enough of a hole for myself oh, here? So what you're saying is you're a Trump supporter. I got it. <laughs> Actually, I am I'm not. I have firmly been in the never Trump. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, no. So I, I, my journey, I think a good way to sum it up is one, one thing I love about my parents is they were from the 60s Jesus freak movement, born again movement, where it was really focused on a personal relationship. And I think if the that focus wasn't there, then I probably would have left the faith because as I started to investigate some of these things and ultimately abandon like young earth creationism, then if I didn't have anything drawing me to keep searching – then that probably would have been it at that point. I probably would have just been like, okay, these first few things I was wrong about, so I'm not going to care anymore. So it, so even though there was some strict theological beliefs, it was also very real faith. And so that made me say, wait, I want to now, – now I'm at this impasse where I'm doubting very strongly, but I also see some strong reasons to believe, and I've seen it work in my life and stuff. And so – now, ultimately, simply having that personal relationship, um, I don't know if that's enough to overcome if you know all the data was against it. So I, I had to look into it. I couldn't just rely on a personal relationship um, as far as – in my own mind, that, that was tearing me apart. So I had to keep looking, and um, that's how I ended up in college and right after college, then just finding myself having to study and study and study. Um, and ultimately feeling like there really is a solid case for Christianity, and that's where I'm at now. You know, Trump supporters are people, too. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, we've, actually, <laughs> we've actually had a uh, Trump supporter on the show, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Um, oh, okay. Came on the show. Yeah. We had a very pleasant time. Nice. That's a lie. We hated each other. <laughs> it was it was the worst podcast I have ever done. Uh, you know, I, I love all of my guests, and I've had some difficult guests. Uh, I came into the uh, uh, show with a particular impression of Dr. Brown. I did a lot of research. The impression got worse. I did the podcast. It got worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, that said, hey, Dr. Brown, want to try again? <laughs> Round two. Uh <laughs> Call me in uh, 12 years. Um, so thank you for that uh, background. And uh, with that, I am going to go ahead and hand the microphone to you again. And I am going to let you introduce uh, your position and maybe explain to the audience what it is I'm calling Robert's Rule. I'm just being cute with that. I know that you don't actually call it that, <laughs> but you should. Uh, take it away. Sure. So what I'd like to do is sort of briefly sketch why I care about epistemology and then a couple of core ideas that I lay out in my own podcast and that are 
pretty fundamental to my own epistemology and that are directly related to this deal breaker idea. Um, and yeah, so I guess the first thing is to describe, well, I'm not trying to, what one thing I saw in your, your second blog post, David, was that uh, you said something about the heuristics and fallacies that it's all very confusing. One thing I'm actually trying not to do is make, I'm trying to make things simpler ultimately. And so it's, it's on me if one of my podcasts made it more confusing because ultimately that's not my goal. Now, I mean, some of these things are complex enough that it's very hard for it not to be confusing, at least at first, but my goal is actually to simplify and as much as my blog is in some ways a philosophy blog, I get a, very tired of a lot of philosophy that can feel like it's this pedantic, um, all these crazy technical terms and simply making things more complex. So I'm sympathetic to the person who who thinks that um, you know you're you're trying to debate how many angels can uh, fit on the head of a pin or whatever. So I'm not. I'm doing it from, in fact, if I had a Twitter handle or something, one of the, the titles I thought I, I could have, if, if I didn't use my name, would be like the pragmatic epistemologist or the common sense epistemologist, because I'm, I'm actually, I'm, not, I'm trying not to oversimplify, but I am trying to simplify and, and have a more holistic worldview, essentially. So with that said, um, let me just go into, okay, so I, I described my own journey, and you end up in these situations where here, here's David, a skeptic, and me, a Christian, talking. And a lot of these discussions are out there you can listen to. And one thing you'll notice is a lot of these people, most of these people are pretty smart people who can, can, can describe and formulate arguments that sound relatively convincing. In fact, I have this Ben Franklin quote I like that says, uh, so convenient a thing to be a reasonable creature since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. And you can substitute has, uh, uh, has a mind to think or to believe there. So the point is, when, with, when you have a complex enough topic, and politics is like this too, smart people can come up with smart arguments. And so that made me um, want to step back and say, okay, we need. I want to focus on sort of the map of knowledge. And in fact, I think that if I had another title, probably the best title for me would be like the knowledge clerk, because I know I can't be an expert in New Testament theology. I can't, I can't be a textual critic at the level of Bart Ehrman. I can't be an archeologist uh, at the level of these great archeologists. So um, all of us have to learn to manage knowledge and weigh it and figure out how to, to have fruitful discussions with the opposing side. For this reason, um, David, are you familiar with uh, John Loftus and the outsider test of faith? I love John Loftus, and uh, I plan to try to get him onto the show uh, at some point. Nice. Um, I might be open to joining for that if you need a Christian, because I've read two of his books. Um, I think his um, Why I Became an Atheist is one of the best counter-apologetic books out there. And it, It's um, funny, you and I have never talked about this, but I completely agree. Cool. No way. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's a very, especially for traditional evangelical faith, uh, the leans fundamentalism, uh, fundamentalist, I think it's a very 
a solid attack on it. Um, and I really liked his outsider test of faith. And in fact, I sensed in John Loftus the exact thing I'm talking about, where you get frustrated when you're in this world long enough, you get frustrated with um, everyone can make these clever arguments. So how can we get past that? And so I actually largely agree with his outsider test of faith. I actually tweeted to him and he liked it that I agreed with like 99% of the book pretty much. Um, so um, I know that was a little bit rambly, but I guess what I'm trying to say is we're, we're smart guys, uh, smart people. We we know a lot about fallacies and biases and stuff like that. So how can we organize this and how can we find general principles to be more consistent and um, and to to map out our arguments in a way that uh, hopefully goes beyond these really precise um, arguments about fine tuning or or, or whatever. It, you need to have those arguments too. But um, that, that's why I care so much about epistemology, because so much of these discussions end up back in a, just simply epistemology itself. Um, and one, one way I like to say it is we're kind of the people who are in these discussions. We're generally too smart to simply fall for confirmation bias, like obvious confirmation bias. Instead, what I think we do is we fall for epistemological tool bias. And what, what I mean by that is, like Ben Franklin said, once we know, once we have a certain point of view, we choose the, the best argument and the best set of arguments to, to argue our case. And each argument might be decent, but we're, we're still kind of, we're selecting the tool with a bias, basically. So it's hard. It's really hard to map these things out, but that's what I try to do um, on my blog and my podcast is talk about these larger ideas, and I'm going to briefly talk about two right now, to try to to break open that and find some common ground um, on how to parse through all this. So let me just briefly talk about two of them, and um, I will put links in uh, my blog post on Skeptics and Seekers as well to these uh, the fuller discussions on my blog. But the first one is this idea of a black swan. Um, there's this great book called The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb, uh, who was an economist. Um, he uh, is really a book about epistemology in a lot of ways. But to give the very quick summary is it makes you much more wary about making assumptions about the details of a complex system. And just to give an example, um, he talks about with global warming – he thinks we should not be adding CO2 th to the atmosphere, not because of a bunch of sure science, but simply because weather is such a complex system that we shouldn't be messing with it without knowing absolutely for sure what we're doing. And the key thing is what is so robust about that position is it only uses the data we all agree on. And that data is um, that the weather that weather and the environment is a very complex system. We all agree on that. And so you argue simply from that standpoint. And I would also say the minimal facts approach to the resurrection fits this as well. You're only using the data that we all uh, almost all agree on um, the consensus uh, facts about Jesus. And the point is not that these arguments go through necessarily, but you get to this common ground because you're starting with data that is safer and more robust. And the reason why that's helpful for me and other lay people is I'm not, once again, I'm not a textual critic. So 
it's risky for me to make too many assumptions about what happened, you know, in 30 AD um, with Paul or something like that. It's it's a safer heuristic, which is the next thing we're going to talk about, to say, well, this is what almost all scholars agree, even the atheist ones. So now we have common ground. Now the atheist can use that data and the Christian can use that data. So the black swan idea just makes me much more humble about doing deep dives into complex systems and coming up with these very sure conclusions about the inner workings of these complex systems. It makes you try to figure out a way to speak at a more general level and only uh, with fear and trembling going to the details. So briefly, uh, I'm going to talk about heuristics now. I know this is sort of a sprint through. So uh, once again, if you're interested, if you find any of this compelling, check out my uh, blog post that I'll link. And um, I'd love to hear more feedback in the, the comments on skeptics and seekers as well. So anyway, the heuristics post, which I know David listened to, the basic idea here is, uh, well, one of the main things in my epistemology is I want to talk about how we actually reason through things. I think a lot of times in these complex debates, people use arguments and talk about data that are not really the main reasons they believe that thing. Um, and so just to give a, and, and so I would say heuristics are much more a part of our worldview than we like to think. We think we want everything to be this hard science and super tight deductive reasoning, but I would argue heuristics are the line share of how we actually navigate the world. And the example I gave in my podcast is the flat earth and that the reason we do not believe in the flat earth on an individual level is because of strong heuristics, heuristics that it would be a massive conspiracy if uh, the earth was not spherical, if all scientists were lying to us. Um, it's also when we read our science textbooks, there is a coherence there, a logical coherence to the data, and also with what the scientists tell, tell us about the Earth being spherical. We can look up at the sky and see uh, the, Earth, the sun and the stars rotate around us, and so that matches up with the spherical Earth and rotation. And, of course, there is science at the foundation of all this, but my point is we individually almost surely did not do those scientific experiments ourselves. So it's these actually very strong heuristics. Properly, we're using heuristics to decide this. And one of my proof proofs of this is, let's say you have a clever flat earther come to your house and show you some, I don't know, obscure, quote unquote, science experiment, or just do some clever math to show you that the earth couldn't be rotating at the speed scientists say it is. And let's say at first blush, the flat earther makes sense. That That's possible. Like, there are clever people out there, and they, they could do something like this. You're not going to abandon your belief that the Earth is a sphere because you have these much stronger heuristics that override this one argument this flat earther is making, even though the flat earther is perhaps making a quote-unquote, you know, deductive argument or showing you a science experiment. Um, so I'm just trying to describe how we actually are holding our knowledge and then evaluating it. And we can we can use heuristics badly. I'm not saying it's perfect uh, by any means. Um, so, but since we're using them, let's discuss them. That's that's a big thing. 
Um, and just to go ahead and give a hand, give a, a point to the atheists, I think heuristics is one of the best ways to argue against inerrancy. Because if you take, if you don't take a heuristical approach, if you try to uh, take one error in the Bible or something, a clever apologist can come up with some different interpretation of that Greek word or something like that and sort of escape from that problem. But I think when you try to add that all up for the whole Bible and say, is this pr actually probably true when you add up all these instances, it becomes uh, a much weaker argument. And in my episode, I, I also say that I think miracles is the mirror the mirror image of this. I think that uh, Christians can make a similar argument for miracles. But anyway, I, I will try to uh, leave that there. So it's kind of the black swan idea, which gives you a kind of a humble epistemology, especially about complex systems. And then heuristics, that heuristics are rightly a part of our toolkit. Um, so I think that I have some things I can lay out about deal breakers. David, do you want to first take it for a bit? Sure, or? I'll, I'll take okay. it and uh, I'll introduce the deal breaker uh, side of it. Uh, by the way, uh, when I first heard your video on heuristics uh, and you were talking about the shape of the earth and uh, then again just now, I felt like the word you were groping for is oblate spheroid. That is totally it. <laughs> Wait, is that is that the correct term for it? Yes. Nice. <laughs> so, one of, one of the few of, things I, I know about geography, and the and it's so I I know that that's what you were after. And I when I was listening to it uh, the first time, I was shouting at the computer, "Oblate spheroid." That's what you're trying to say. Just say it. Just no. Anyway, that doesn't work. But anyway, that's uh, now I've got it out of my out of my head. I'm I'm good. I can. Nice. I could pick up with the rest. I kind of missed everything that you said after you talked about the shape of the earth because I kept saying, <laughs> Oblate spheroid! Obl <laughs> nice. Anyway. I'm kind of glad I didn't know that word because that would have been annoying to have to say over and over again during that episode. <laughs> all right. Um, so first of all, thank you um, for that uh, introduction. That was that was fantastic. And I want you, uh, if, in the name of uh, generous conversation give some ground up front. Um, I, I, there's lots of ground. And so I can get, don't worry people, I can give lots of ground away and still <laughs> still keep some for the fight. Um, but I actually agree uh, with some of your uh, thesis uh, here. And it's, it's going to take a conversation to kind of sort out where we disagree. Uh, so for instance, uh, I do believe that most of what I know is probably based on heuristics. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. Uh, you know, any experiments that I did in school don't really count, honestly. Um, I'm not a scientist. And, and yet I feel like there are things that I'm fairly confident about uh, in, you know, in the scientific world when, when we're talking about how the, the universe works. Uh, well, how do I know that? Well, I know it because people smarter than me have devoted their lives to do the work uh, and come up with the answers. Now, it's not just one person. Exactly. You know? yeah. uh, so if we're, if we're talking about a fallacy of authority, uh, sure, okay. But it's a lot of authority in a lot of different fields uh, who 
it, and not all of the authorities that I respect agree with one another, but you know, be, I'm able to listen to the debate and and break it down, and then listen to the authorities and so forth, and come up with what seems to be a pretty solid model of how the universe works, at least at the level that I need to understand it. And let me, if if I may, cut in just for a second. Um, uh, two other quick things is. The, I think the strongest worldview or strongest argument in any given topic is when all the what I call the Zoom levels uh, are in agreement. So when it's great when the authorities say something, it's even better when you also understand their data and their arguments because then you have an agreement. Now, when those get into a disagreement, when you disagree with authorities or the authorities disagree with your understanding, you know, you have to resolve that. But that that is the most solid. I'm not saying you should, you know, only rely on a heuristic. But like you said, you there's a certain number of authorities that say this about how the universe works. And then you also understand there's a co- coherence to their arguments. And so that gives even more validation for that. And, and the second thing I wanted to clear up is um, I think you were confused about how I was using the term fallacy. Um, I, I was at the time that I uh, wrote my paper, but then I rewatched that section of the video again, and I didn't get a chance to rewrite it. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, so it's only a fallacy when you make it logically inescapable. Right. So when you say, because an authority said this, it's logically inescapable that this is true. Yes, that's a fallacy, but it's not a fallacy to make a strong probabilistic or heuristic argument about what the authorities say, especially if you also understand the underlying argument. Right. Now, the reason I'm not going to actually change my paper, <laughs> and I still might post this, is because I think it's at some level, um, the rule of th- the, um, I almost said rule of thumb, I'm going to say that later, the um, heuristic does become the rule. You You use it like a rule, even if you say it's not a rule, mm-hmm. it still gets used like a rule, and it's and it's hard to uh, distinguish that and sort that out. Um, you know, if uh, let's say there was an ancient law about the size of the stick that you could beat your child with, uh, and uh, let's say that that was about the size of a person's thumb, uh, and let's say mm-hmm. we called that the rule of thumb. Uh, and they were brought to a courtroom uh, one day, and you, you know, I see some welts on this child, and uh, they look like more the size of a pinky. Well, you see, my thumb—I had it wrapped because I broke it, and so I used my pinky. Uh, well, sir, you broke the law. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, because the law is the rule of thumb; uh, it's not the rule of pinky. Uh, and so, you, you can see where a simple heuristic can, in fact be used as a rule is very pretty hard to sort out it can get pretty hard to sort out uh, that's true where the heuristic ends and the rule begins yeah so, yeah i i think um there ultimately is this doesn't end the discussion by simply bringing to light these heuristics the main thing i want to do is to bring them to light that they're often completely ignored and people simply go straight to the hard data but one of the biggest problems is most of us aren't even experts with that data. And so I think at least discussing some of the heuristics involved are helpful. Sure. And let me let me give ground in one other place uh, while it's on my mind, uh, which is uh, deductive arguments. 
uh, versus heuristics. I think this is dangerous territory. <laughs> um, and I know that Darren uh, is going to have something to say about this in the comments, uh, too. Uh, let's just see how our conversation goes. But it, it's dangerous territory because, um, of course, uh, deductive, deductive, logical rules, and we might add hard, fast laws of physics and exact measurements and things like that. These are important things when it For comes sure. to understanding the universe. Um, so we can't, we can't just dismiss those and say, yes, but I've got this handy heuristic here. Uh, because uh, things like uh, rule of thumb and a stone's throw away and, oh, about the length of the king's foot and uh, as the crow flies, these things don't get rocket ships built, and right. uh, you know they don't get um, rockets landing on asteroids, um, you know, half a half a light year away. So um, we we have to be exact uh, when when right. it is possible to do so, uh, and so we we just have to be careful uh, that we not accept a heuristic too quickly when yes. we have. Uh, exact data that we can deal with. Uh, but and, and heuristics can be overturned as well. A lot of times they're a placeholder until you do become an expert or you know more as well, and that's appropriate too. So this is this is where we're going to get into deal breakers, which I will which I will introduce in a minute. I'm I'm not done giving ground uh, on this <laughs> point yet though, um, which is in in terms of deductive arguments. So I am not a philosophy wonk, and I I have a lot of friends who are very good at philosophy. Dale was. Um, you know, he, he could make your eyes glaze over uh, with philosophy. And that's him trying to take it easy on you. <laughs> um, Val in the comments, V-A-A-L, Val, um, he is a philosophy wonk. He has a way of breaking it down and uh, making it seem uh, simple and uh, easy to understand. And it is while you're reading him. And then when you go away and think about it, you you realize you can't think his thoughts. Uh, his his thoughts are above your thoughts, I promise. Um, but I've uh, people like that tend to think that you know the, the strong philosophical uh, deductive argument that's the thing that wins the day. And I tend to disagree with that. Um, and the reason is because I, I think that the truth is not always. A, I don't think it's always revealed in the the best deductive argument of the time because we keep improving our arguments. Um, right. And B, uh, the one who wins the philosophical debate is the smartest guy in the room that day. It's right, not right. the most correct guy in the room. So I can I can lose a debate to a philosopher and still not be wrong. Uh, it's just that yep, they're, they're yeah. smarter than me, right? And they had a better day than me, and they were on fewer opioids than me that day. Um, it, I think the yeah. ontological argument is a good example of this, that it can sound like this airtight system at first blush. I'm not I, I'm not a total – I don't totally disparage it, but I do not use it at all. It seems like wordplay to me, but it's a great example of this deductive argument, and um, if, if you're – all about deduction and that's all you care about then the day that the ontological argument looks right to you you should immediately become a theist but that that seems like way too hasty to me yeah it's uh, so i hate it um i had a, <laughs> I had a debate with um with um 
no, this is embarrassing. Uh, he's a guy who uh, was very strong on the uh, ontological argument. We argued about it. Uh, he's one of Dale's friends. I can't. I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. Uh, maybe I will just put a little place in the podcast uh, and then come back and edit it later. <laughs> edit it out. <laughs> and insert the name as if I knew it all along. Uh, but because I hate to edit, that's probably not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, so I just I want to grant that um, there you know deductive arguments are not the end all be all, and we use heuristics more than we like to admit, uh, and especially people like me, I like to think that I really really know. Uh, for good reasons, things that I think I know. And uh, uh, most of it is just heuristics. Right. And properly so, and they can be strong. You know, it, does, it doesn't mean you're an idiot for believing those things. That That is part of my point as well. Right. So um, that's, that's, that's enough of the friendly getting along. Let me, um, <laughs> let me just uh, make a brief statement um, about where I got in on this. So I heard you talk, uh, to Dale uh, on his show. I think that Matt was on the show as well. Yep. Uh, and uh, the discussion was miracles because Matt had some math that uh, he hadn't spent yet. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't blame him. Um, and uh, so that was, that was an interesting show. If I think about it, I'll put a link in the, uh, uh, the uh, discussion to it. Uh, but you uh, you talked a little bit about your um, heuristic model, and uh, you uh, you were particularly uh, on that show uh, very vocal about uh, not not taking um, outliers and and turning those into um, the issue. That, that we could take outliers or things that seem to go against uh, a heuristic uh, and, and toss them out or or put them in perspective. It, it doesn't it doesn't have to ruin a good heuristic just because there's an outlier that seems to speak against it. I mean, there are a number of ways, for instance, just to just to kind of steel man that argument a little bit that you can that you can interpret an outlier, right? So I mean you mm -hmm. can you can look at an outlier and say, well, uh that's a mistake. <laughs> right? That's right. that's probably yeah. the easiest way to deal with it. Um you know, we've got this whole body of things that says uh God loves you. And he wants to spend eternity with you. In this one passage way over here in Jude, the second chapter, that says, God hates all humans and can't wait to watch you roast. Uh, first of all, there's no Jude, the second chapter. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is an old joke from, um, from my preacher days. Uh, we would often say something uh, utterly fallacious and uh, cite Jude, the second chapter for it. Nice, nice. Um, so, um, yeah, so, but if you did find that passage in the Bible, one of the things that you could say is, well, this outlier clearly does not look the same as all of these other passages that say God loves you. And, you know, without breaking too much of a sweat, we can just call it an error and move on. Uh, you know, we can say that, you know, this was a scribal note. Um, you know, they were, they were experimenting with, you know, this or that. We can, 
you know, there are all kinds of things that we can say. We can say, well, you know, those those words don't mean what they say they mean. You know, if you look at the Hebrew uh, real close and you, you look at the Greeks and how they were using, you know, really that right. passage says, uh, you know, that God loves you, even though it says, I, I hate you and I want to see you burn. Um, you know, there are all kinds right. of ways to deal with that. And there's apologists that do that all day. We both know this. All and it's infuriating a, I, a I lot of times. I come from a denomination that specializes in, uh, in chasing and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, yeah, I w- uh, it, it is infuriating. <laughs> it doesn't matter which side of it uh, you're on. It, it, at some point, that just feels... It, it made me disgusting. doubt more. Because that's where I started. You know, I first looked at those resolutions... First, because of course I did. And it made me doubt more because it was so close-minded. You know, it was so uh, so biased. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I break down uh, outliers, uh, theological outliers, uh, into two categories. Uh, I talk about two different things um, in, I think, my second blog, which may or may not get posted. We'll see. Um so the t- the two categories of outliers are moldy cheese and uh, <laughs> rotten apple. Uh, and so when I say moldy cheese, I mean hard cheeses. Okay, if you see mold in soft cheeses, throw it out. <laughs> but mold in hard cheeses like Parmesan, uh, even cheddar, cheddar's uh, still considered hard cheese. Uh, you can just scrape that mold right out of there and keep eating. It's fine. It's not going to ruin your cheese. And so if you've got an outlier and you think of it as moldy cheese, it's it's okay to take a surgical approach to it and scrape it out. Your cheese is fine. However, if you have a rotten apple in, in a bunch of apples, a, a pile of apples is called a bunch, I guess, um, then that's a problem. It's not like moldy cheese. It will quickly spread and ruin all of the apples. If you open up one of your boxes of apples and you see a rotten apple, you have to throw all of it out. It's all bad at that point. Uh, kind of uh, in the way that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You know, right. I, I, I had this nice, uh, this this flour and, you know, my mix. And I was, I was going to make this nice flatbread. And I spilled uh, this jar and a little bit of the leaven got over in there. But I think it'll be okay. No, it won't. <laughs> it will not be okay. Right. Uh, you're not making flatbread anymore after that. So um, uh, I go into this because the way you and I deal with outliers is, I think, fundamentally uh, different. I think that you would tend to look at outliers as moldy cheese, and I tend to look at it as rotten apples when it comes to the Bible. Now, I know in the real world, we also have uh, outliers. You know, there are, there are behavioral outliers. Uh, you know, maybe a person who used to swear a lot um, says a swear word in public, and he says, oops, I slipped. Sorry about that. And they really are doing well. You know, they really don't <laughs> swear that much. And you can say, hey, that's an outlier. Don't, don't judge that guy. Um, and then there is, uh, you know, that's moldy cheese. And then there's a scenario um, where a person um, hits their wife. Don't care what the scenario is. Uh, that may that may or may not be an outlier. Don't care. It's a rotten right. apple. 
you got to throw it out. Uh, got to throw out the but you can't. You got to get away from that. Uh, let me be more clear. That's divorce material. Uh, if that happens just as you uh, <laughs> leave the uh, wedding chapel uh, and you're on your honeymoon, uh, it's time to head to the divorce lawyer <laughs> at that right. point. Um, so um, this is so I would like to suggest that when we see these types of things in the Bible, and we and I'm focusing particularly on negative outliers in the Bibles. This is mm-hmm. what I call deal breakers. These single issue uh, uh, topics in the Bible or maybe a single passage that says a thing, even if it's one time, it can be enough to ruin the whole thing. I'm, I'm calling most, if not all of those situations, rotten apples. And frankly, you don't need a lot of them. You just need one. One mm-hmm. legitimate rotten apple uh, ends the entire uh, biblical theological project, as far as I'm concerned, and I've actually got a list of probably ten or fifteen uh, mm-hmm. of those. But I I only am set to talk about uh, three of them today. Now, before uh, getting into some Q and A, I just want to um, acknowledge uh, that the number one way people deal with the kinds of outliers I'm talking about is to say that, well, that's because you come from a fundamentalist background. And you look at the Bible as if it were, uh, you know, the inerrant word of God, uh, you know, they couldn't have any errors. Well, that is true. Uh, The Bible is either a perfect book or it's not. Um, And maybe, I I don't know, this discussion might veer into, well, if if we're to think of it as an imperfect book, then maybe we can get into some specifics of where do you think it's imperfect and how do, Mm -hmm. how do, how are we supposed to tell when it's perfect and infallible and when it's not because everyone believes that some parts of the Bible are infallible, all Christians. There's some part of the Bible that they hold sacred, <laughs> something, something there. And so it becomes a, a, a very difficult uh, thing then to tell when it's perfect and when it's not. But I, I recognize that um, one of the ways to kind of get around some of this deal breaker um, thought process is to say, well, you know, the Bible is not a perfect book. Um, and so I'm just kind of going down my other notes. And rather than go any further, I think I'll stop there uh, since we both had uh, some lengthy uh, introductions. And I am going to switch horses. Would you like to question me first about anything that I've said or written? Or would you like me to question you? So since we had we ended up with so much on the table to discuss by the time we got to this recording, um, I think there is another two minutes I want to outline on my side and then hopefully all the pieces will be on the table. I I know you want to go into your specific examples, but do you mind if I outline one more uh, angle of things and then we can figure out. You're just stacking up the questions for me to ask you and knock yourself out. Great. Great. So, so I, you know, I described my approach to epistemology already. Um, So when I come to deal breakers, this is, sort of my thought process. And and as I was mulling over what I was going to say, kind of what I came up with, one of my principles is I want to, or here, here are kind of three principles of my epistemology that are very related to deal breakers. I want to consider all the data. I want to have an appropriately humble epistemology. And I want to allow for conflicting data in my worldview. And what I mean by that is I don't want to squash 
conflicting data. I'd rather hold two pieces of data in tension uh, for as long as necessary until I have a resolution rather than squashing one. So the, the way these relate to deal breakers is I think deal breakers can be a stopper to consider considering all the data. They can almost literally be a stopper by saying, I'm breaking this deal. I don't want to hear anymore. So it just in general, I think that's a bad principle if you're not just hearing the full argument, kind of. Um, secondly, I think it can be in danger of violating having a humble epistemology because uh, going back to my black swan ideas, uh, it might be dipping into a very complex topic and and deciding things a little too hasty, hastily. Um, not necessarily. The, and there are appropriate deal breakers. Um, so, and then allowing for conflicting data, um, just to give an example of this with deal breakers, let's say, and this is something um, I think I put in my blog on on this show, I uh, my understanding is the Quran is thought to have been written with automatic writing, which means this direct channeling of divine words. So no humanness really involved at all. It's just Muhammad going into like a trance and writing down the exact words of Allah. That to me is um, sort of a maybe a tentative sort of deal breaker, you could say, to Islam, because that means anything that looks like an error is even more immediately a problem for the Quran than the Bible, because the Bible has, we've never thought the Bible, except for maybe distinct passages, were written with this sort of automatic writing. So, but this is a key thing. Even though it might be a little bit of a tentative deal breaker for me, um, I want to hear all the data. So if uh, a Muslim comes to me and says, okay, yeah, I hear you, but let me tell you this other stuff. Um, I want to hear it. And let's say the evidence is overwhelming for Islam. Um, maybe I end up at this stalemate where I feel like I have this almost deal breaker against it because of an error in the Quran. And yet I see all this other data for it. Um, and it's even technically possible, I think, that if the the argument for Islam was so strong that I would have to – it would end up being a defeater for my deal breaker. And I would have to say – Man, um, I don't know what's going on there, but the evidence is so strong, I'm going to have to put this aside. So the key thing is I just want to hear everything, and I, I want to allow for conflicting data uh, and not let things be prematurely squashed in either direction. Uh, and a, a final key thing here is um, – well, uh, about the, the conflicting data is one thing I notice about my beliefs as I've gone through this journey is I no longer have a monolithic belief. I have a constellation of beliefs. So to give an example, the supernatural for me has become a fundamental has become fundamental data in the universe for me from from my experiences and what I've read and studied. So so if Christianity was disproven, if Jesus was like disproven, I would still feel like there were supernatural forces. So now it's not a monolith anymore. I, I'm trying to gather together all the evidence. Um and uh, another example is if um, – well, that, yeah, that's good enough for that. I'm just trying to say it's, I'm trying to bring all the data together and not let one thing squash the other. But of course, like back to the Quran um, example, um, after I hear the Muslim give me his full argument, 
when I zoom back out and take it all into account, which I think that's the only way to judge things is that the is zooming back out. Still, the issue of the crime having an error might by far be the biggest problem. And that might immediately make me think, yeah, this is the truth. That's totally fine. So uh, for me to give ground to you, David, I fully agree that things can be a big enough problem to uh, to to be the tipping point. I still think we should look at all the data together um, and it should be balanced, but ultimately that might be the tipping point and that is perfectly fine. And we do, I fully agree, we do this all the time in real life as well. Um, and I was gonna actually read something you wrote in your blog to affirm it. And you say, um, this is in your, um, I think this is in your second post. You said, God might represent a complicated system, but he has left us with certain expectations. He's not supposed to be a total mystery that is wholly other. He explains what love is and says he is love. Therefore, we are within our rights to expect him behave lovingly. It should work the way we expect it to work. When, when we ask for a fish, fish, we should be shocked if we get a stone. Jesus tells us as much. I, I really fully affirm that. Um, that and that's why I'm I really go against and this came up in the Pascal's wager episode. I really go against the sort of hyper Calvinist approach where you can start to define God as essentially not loving, um, but he's still loving because we say he is and just accept it. And I don't I don't accept that. Like at best you have a conflicting data, but I'm not going to. You're, you're starting to get into 2 plus 2 equals 5. And so I want to affirm um, your standpoint on that, David, that when you zoom out, there might be a big enough um, red flag that it weighs the evidence. And it might be a single thing, and that is perfectly fine. Um, I just want to make sure it actually is big enough to do that, and I want to hear all the data as well um, and not let one piece squash the others uh, prematurely. Um, so that is kind of my take on the whole deal breaker thing. I don't know if you want to ask me questions or, um, I can ask you questions as well at this point. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I have some specific questions I want to ask you, but let me, uh, let me just have you ask me questions to get started. I don't mind being on the hot seat. I like the hot seat. I like it hot. <laughs> Great. Um, I mean, Honestly, probably my questions are, are going to be, in the end, about which things you do. I mean, at this point, it's kind of nice. Like, we've laid out the sort of map, and then we're, I, th I mean, probably all that's left is, like, to talk about what you think are deal breakers okay, so let me, at this point, you let know? Me, let, me just, let me just get into some, some stuff just before we get there. Um, sure. So it may sound like a non sequitur, but uh, work with me. Uh, so based on your frame of knowledge, who wrote the Pentateuch? Um, so I, once I stopped caring about a lot of the details of the Bible, like feeling like it wasn't, <laughs> for me, a deal breaker, if it was true or not, um, I... I stopped, like I used to study, you know, could the flood be local or, you know, could, could you interpret the story to be local? And I used to study all that stuff. I, and once that became irrelevant to my judgment of if Christianity is true or not, I stopped caring. Kind of. So um, I take, 
I have a wide range of possibilities for this sort of stuff. I'm fully on board with almost most humans. Would you agree that most Christians would say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so where did Moses get his information, especially for the stuff uh, where he wasn't around for uh, right. I mean, uh, that's what's strange is like the Pentateuch includes Moses's own death. Right. right. So, so yeah. What, what's, <laughs> yeah, it includes a, a time before he was and a time after he was. So right. where would you once again, I'm not necessarily trying to trap you here. Yeah. Where would you uh, how would you uh, say that most Christians would answer that question? Where, where I think I've actually wondered this. I've never. I'm not sure I've asked one. Okay. <laughs> what you you? I'm sure you know. How how would they answer it? Duh. That's how they would answer it. Um, so uh, the, the you're fact- so charitable with I, your your debates. Have you noticed that, David? I have. <laughs> uh, well, I tell you what. I'll be charitable now. That uh, snippet you read, that was fantastic. I mean, a great, I want to I want to go back and read the whole article. Who is this guy? Um, anyway, uh, where was I? <laughs> so, um, the reason I'm asking uh, is because if you if you think about this little uh, conundrum of the Pentateuch and um, who wrote it, Moses, and how did he get his information? You would have to say, well, he got it from God, and and I think that that's mm-hmm. where most what most Christians would say i mean they wouldn't this is not a very robust well thought out answer but that's what they would give i think uh well moses obviously got it from god well when did moses get it from god well he spent an awful lot of time with god in that tent uh you know so these these are these are the kinds of answers that you might expect uh especially from a fundamentalist uh christian and on the surface uh they seem to make a lot of sense however if that is the case, then you have to give up on this notion that the Bible was not dictated. At least part of it was. At least part of it had to be. It had to have come directly from God, from God's mouth to Moses' ear, right. and, and, and directly to his quill from there. Because what kind of person would Moses be to then just kind of paraphrase God? <laughs> you know, right? That that just wouldn't make any sense. And so, uh, at some level, there are in uh, the Pentateuch is not the only part. Of it. It's just the most obvious part. That uh, at some level, you have to say that at least parts of the Bible do, in fact, come directly from God. And when when Paul says that all scriptures are given by inspiration of God, at at some level, he has to mean directly. Yeah, um, I, I guess where I'm tempted to agree is when some of the prophets speak, and you know, it's like, and the Lord says, "That was going to be my but, next thing." <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I guess I don't, I don't fully go there. I mean, inspire means God breathe, right? Isn't that the literal like Greek? Sure, that's the literal Greek. But it, even beyond the literal words, it's what did he mean by it when he said it? Right. And so uh, you can't. What what Christians tend to say, especially the the uh, new uh, new is not the right word. I, I often uh, call uh, liberals like yourself new apologists um, <laughs> as as a response to the whole new atheist thing. Right. You right. Know, we're, it's not new, folks. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, you knew apologists. Uh, you, your knee-jerk reaction is often to say, oh, no, no, well, God didn't. It's not like God dictated the Bible. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> it is like God dictated the Bible, at least in parts. And I think that we, sh- we would surely be able to agree with the logic of that. You can't get the prophecies without uh, some direct communication from God. And if you don't have direct communication from God, then the prophecies aren't what they are uh, purporting to be. Yeah, I mean, so I, I'm just so much more tentative on this. Um, I'm just tentative on the whole Bible, honestly. Like you, you in fact said that you know um, all Christians have to believe it's infallible somewhere, and I would say I I don't like I don't have any need any necessity to believe it's infallible anywhere because I think one of the pillars of of believing uh of arguing for the case is the resurrection of jesus and his life and i think the best way to argue for that is seeing it as totally uninspired and just normal historical ancient religious documents um so i'm not even sure I guess I don't feel that force, like, oh, I got to see some of it as dictated. Like, why can't I start with um, other reasons to believe, and then the Bible seems murky? And it's, it's. in fact, when I first was— Because the Bible won't let you do it. Uh, Okay. It just won't. You know, if Jesus says, my father said blank, you have to believe that that is a direct quote or it's not a direct quote. You know, if it's not a direct quote, it's a lie. Uh, if a prophet said, God told you people this, now remember it and repeat it, because these are the words of the God, that's either a direct truth or a direct lie. There, it, there's no room the Bible simply won't let you get away with that. There are places where you can get away uh, with it, but there are places where you can't. I mean, part of this is I'm trying to enter their worldview, but not make their worldview uh, necessarily true for today. Um, and I mean, part of that can even extend to Jesus to a degree, you know, like, I mean, I think there it's murky exactly what it meant for Jesus to be human. Like, I mean, he says the son doesn't know, you know, when he will return. So, you know, even if you have this robust divinity of Jesus, um, there's still this somewhat limitedness of him. And he says, I mean, this is something that's quoted that. He, you know, he says the mustard seed is the smallest, and it's not the smallest. But because he was a Palestinian Jew, he didn't know what the actual smallest one was. You know, like so, I just well, feel like to be clear, it wasn't even the yeah. smallest one in the area. <laughs> so he was a bad botanist. Um, well, that's and I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, I, I guess I don't feel this force that oh, I have to see him this way, and since he's not Christianity, is not true. Right. So I. I kind of see where you're coming from, but I'm trying to lay the foundation to help you see where I'm coming from. Okay. All right. Uh, and if I'm interjecting too much, like feel free to lay out your case. Well, it's it's a conversation. Uh, okay. So it's okay. Um, I, so when, if you, if you read the Bible and you take it uh, seriously at a certain level and you think it through uh, carefully at a certain level, there are just some places that, you know, where you might like to have some wiggle room. There just isn't any. 
it's it's very hard to find. And so this is part of where I am coming from. If you take those places where it has to be from God, and then you find errors there, now you have a problem. It's a, it's a much bigger problem um, than if you just have some errors in something that David said, you know, about some war or right. something. Um, because now you have the problem of determining, well, uh, did, and let's just call a character Moses, did Moses um, make a mistake about what God said? Because if Moses can make one mistake about what God said, he can make a mistake about everything. Um, did Moses lie about what God said? It's not like we can go back and fact check him. Uh, so if he can lie about one thing, he can lie about everything. Or did Moses just make up his encounter with God? Uh, that's a possibility too. And and so the whole thing gets thrown into question when one of those places with no wiggle room um, has a problem. So this is at least from my perspective where I would begin to say the, the Bible actually does purport to be more than the type of book that you're describing right now. It does purport to be a, a place where people are taking dictation from God at times, where God has entered uh, the world of humanity and he is actually interacting with us on a direct level. And he is talking to us and he's giving us orders and he's going alongside us and doing things with us with a lot of detail and specificity. And if that stuff isn't true, we have a problem with the nature and character of the whole book for me. Because now I've got to become a scholar enough to be able to determine, well, what, what parts are really God and what parts aren't. And if you say, well, okay, let's just throw away all of it. None of it's God. Then I've got to figure out what to do with those parts that purport it to be God. You know, are those lies? Are those, you know, what do we do? So, I mean, can you at least see the challenge that someone like me would have here? Um, I see the challenge, but I do disagree. And basically, so first of all, you say, um, you say, well, now I have to figure out which ones are lies and which ones are true. Sure, but I still don't – I guess why does that mean automatically Christianity is is false? Like I understand why it throws a whole Bible into this uh, this conundrum of now i got to figure it all out. Uh, is it even worth trying to figure it out? Sure, but I guess I don't feel the force of why that makes Christianity – is a deal-breaker for Christianity. What are you calling Christianity? Because I, there's nothing – you don't actually get the God of the Bible without the Bible. It's not like you can take the Bible and set it aside and say, okay, this, this book is damaged. We'll figure out God from uh, some other sources. There are no other sources. <laughs> you know, God doesn't no, show I up think... in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, for instance. Uh, in Christianity, uh, you don't get Christianity as, as a religion with doctrines and tenets without the Bible. It just isn't doesn't show up uh, other than that. And so I don't, I don't think we have the option to just take the Bible and set it aside. So I would argue that you sort of can using Jesus and Paul as historical figures and gleaning what you can. Okay, but Jesus didn't leave any his... writings. But I'm saying treating him as a figure in history that we can investigate with historical tools right, but from the, the only place we can learn about Jesus is in the Bible. <laughs> but I'm not saying to treat them as religious texts. I mean, as inspired texts. 
Right, but if it's bad history, it's that's not a better problem than, you know, God is lying to us. If it's bad history and that's the only place you can learn about him, then how do you know that you're learning reliable information about him? Um, well, I mean, we could quickly tumble into a argument about the historicity of some things. But my point is, uh, even if it's imperfect history, which I kind of think it is, then I I mean, don't you agree that we can still know a good bit about Jesus and the theology of Paul um, from a historical perspective? I think we can know. I, I would separate Jesus and Paul uh, because there's no question that Paul was a real person. I mean, there was somebody, we can call him Paul, who wrote the books that Paul wrote, right? Sure. Um, so I don't see any reason to not call him Paul. Uh, but I think there's a lot that we don't know about Paul. There's a lot of bad information about Paul because uh, a lot of what we know about Paul is in the book of Acts, for instance. Well, if you compare uh, Luke's writing about Paul to Paul writing about Paul, there are a lot of major differences uh, between the two stories. And so, if, for instance, the only thing you knew about Paul was from the book of Acts, I would argue that you don't know anything about Paul. Um, but you can know a lot more about Paul, and especially Paul's theology, by reading um, you know, at least seven of, his, uh, of the works attributed to him in the Bible. Um, so we do at least have some historical record of what Paul uh, thought about Christianity. We don't have any historical record about what Jesus thought or said or did or who he was. Um, I think that's false to say because we can use, I mean, we can at least glean something from the Gospels, don't you think, historically? Uh, so, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that the Gospels are good histories. Now, I, I want to be careful here. Um, of course, there are some things that are going to be historically true in the Gospels. And Acts, but they were not written as histories. So there are also going to be things uh, historically true in a Tom Clancy novel. Uh, I would argue there may be more things historically true in a Tom Clancy novel, um, but that's a that's a discussion for another day, I think. But uh, you can't. I think it's a very dangerous thing to try to glean history from a Tom Clancy novel, and I think it's a very dangerous thing to glean history from a um, a, a theological. Uh, sermon uh, that's that's simply not what it was written to do uh, so can we learn something about Jesus sure but what can we learn what are the things that are reliable and true that we can learn since we're going through this dance of trying to figure out what's true and what's not true and you know he said this but this was wrong and you know that now we got to figure out well how, how much did he say was wrong how much did other people say about him that was wrong there's also this you know, I don't want to get too far into this because I'm actually going to have this right. discussion with another uh, person here soon about the historicity of the gospel. But I'll just uh, bring up the word, uh, give people a, a chance to get used to hearing it. Uh, there, There's a literary category called hagiographies. Right. Uh, and I think that the gospel and Luke are uh, classic hagiographies. Uh, and a hagiography is not a history. It's it's myth-making. It's, leg it, well, it's legendary writing of heroes. So uh, an, an example of a non-biblical hagiography um, might be, I say might, 
because this just may be mythology, but King Arthur, um, those those stories might be considered hagiographies because who knows if you look deep enough in history, maybe it was based on somebody. Right? We don't know. Uh, I actually don't believe uh, they were based on any, anyone, but uh, you know there were certainly situations and times and things that inspired the stories. But let's let's just say that there's a real person in history somewhere where these stories were based off of. Well, he did not have those adventures and do those things and have those powers mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, what we have is a hagiography um, of of a hero. Uh, we don't have a history. And so I, I think that when you're looking at the Gospels and Acts, you're, you're looking at hagiographies, and you really don't want to use those as history books. So uh, first of all, um, that's fine, but I will direct the listener to alternative viewpoints on that as well from people like Mike Lacona and Richard Bauckham. Uh, and I, I know where you're coming from, and I, of course, um, I want to leave uh, – trying to have a robust epistemology, I want to leave room – for as much of that as possible, David, because the more I leave room for that, if I hold, if my beliefs are independent of that, the stronger my stance is. So I think this will help you understand me a little better if I just very briefly describe how I hold my beliefs then, um, since maybe I, I uh, it seems mysterious at this point. So I, I really do take a sort of minimal facts approach to the resurrection. So that that is using, I think, what most scholars would say is the most secure data we have around Jesus. Um, now, I'm not trying to get into an argument about uh, the resurrection right now. I'm more saying, let, let's, let's grant that, that at least Robert can reasonably get to that place, even if he's wrong, but he can get to that place uh, with the data uh, available, not treating anything as, as, as inspired. And so, okay, if I have this historical figure we know something about who raised from the dead, then from textual criticism, um, we know even someone like Bart Ehrman says that, you know, we get, I forget what percentage he said, but uh, in his book with Bruce Metzger, um, that we can get back to the original words of the New Testament largely. Now, there's, of course, plenty of problematic passages, without a doubt, and question, big question marks. But, like, in other words, like you said, we, we can know that someone under this name Paul wrote these documents. So we have this theology, and we can make some just basic historical judgments about these people, and then if this guy rose from the dead— um, then you also have things like, for instance, I, I just really think there is historical bedrock about Jesus. Like um, I read N.T. Wright's book, um, uh, Jesus and the Victory of God, and I've also read John Dominic Crossan's book, who is, for all intents and purposes, a skeptic. Uh, he wrote Life of the uh, Jesus, Life of the Mediterranean Peasant. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, I, I read that a long time ago. Um, so I read both. I yeah, yeah, both very different approaches, but I think even Crossan's book uh, and and Wright's say that like Jesus as a uh, someone who performed mighty works is historical bedrock, and I believe it's even generally agreed that that's in the uh, Josephus passage about Jesus that he was a worker of mighty works. So that 
for all, I, I just feel like for all I intents mean, and purposes, what, that's, what does that even mean? That, I mean, Simon the Sorcerer was also a man known for performing mighty works sure. for a long time in a region. Uh, so, but I, I'm assuming that you can make at least uh, uh, somewhat of a case about the resurrection. Like it would be different if you can make a minimal facts. No, case. so I argue the minimal facts uh, a little bit with uh, Gary Habermas. Um, nice on uh, on the show last season, and. Um, even though uh, the minimal facts wasn't uh, the main focus of our discussion, uh, it didn't. You know, I don't. I don't think they do stand up to uh, as much scrutiny as you're giving them. And I also uh, had a chance to talk about this a little bit with uh, Mike Lacona, uh, who, nice. who who you've mentioned. So, um, I I I get where you're coming from, but uh, I don't even I don't even think that we can have a reasonable discussion about uh, minimal facts and things that you can glean about Jesus until you determine that the source material that you're using is intended uh, as a history and not as a hagiography. Uh, so just as, just as an example of this, uh, and again, I'll, I'll be talking about this more, so if you guys like geeking out on this literary stuff, it's coming. Um, David Kimball Cook uh, will be the guest for this. Um, but just just one little detail that everybody knows about, which is the uh, great resurrection of Matthew 27. Uh, you've got uh, the graves opening uh, at the time of Jesus' death, graves opening and dead people, many dead people coming out and appearing to... One of the strangest passages in all the Gospels. It, without it, it. it is. Uh, and I have, I have roasted it mercilessly. <laughs> and and I will continue to do so, but but not right at the moment. I will just say that um, this is a passage that most Christians that I have had dealings with, uh, anyway. So you can take that sample size for what it's worth. Takes it literally, uh, and that's fine. Right. I know that Mike Lacona uh, does not. Right. Um, I, actually, I recently tweeted Michael Bird, another scholar. Um, this was just last week, and I asked him, "Do you kind of go with Mike Lacona on that?" And he also does. So that's another piece of data. Yeah. No. Well, uh, I think most Christians do take it literally. I don't think most scholars do, and it, it, this is the point. This is where the divide is. And so um, I think that this passage. I don't think it's metaphorical. I think it's hagiographical, <laughs> if, if, if that's even a word. I think that this is uh, part of the legend. It's saying something about the greatness of Jesus. Um, and I think a lot of things in the Gospels are, are there, and it, also in the book of Acts, to say something about the greatness of these men, Paul and Peter, uh, that they were giants among men. They weren't just men. Uh, and here, you see, take a look at this story. Look at this event that happened. You see how great he was. And yet, uh, those things, I think, are, are narrated in a way that one can kind of wink at it and understand, oh, no, that's not a literal event. The author is not actually reporting that a bunch of graves in the big city uh, of that time popped open and appeared to lots of people, and nobody noticed it. Um, but but Matthew, I don't think that's what's being said. This is this is how hagiographies look, though. And I'll, I'm just saying, if you have that place where it's kind of obvious, how many other places are you counting as historical that are also really hagiographical? 
Yes. So um, I guess I still still don't see how it, it just seems like the entire field of textual and historical criticism assumes you can still glean real historical data. Like even the Jesus seminar, uh, who was very wary about choosing passages as certainly said by Je- Jesus, still picked some. Like they picked, well, I believe, sure, the. But they, didn't, you know, they also didn't come up with a Jesus that anybody would worship. <laughs> Yeah, but my point, that's not my point. My point is to glean historical data. And let let me just uh, finish this thought. I think you can then question me on it, is that um, I I think I'm simply within my rights to at least attempt a historical case of the resurrection using minimal facts and and, and having a theological text through Paul to understand that resurrection, and that for me is is the core of my Christianity. So I haven't gone to any inspiration level at this point, um, and so that that's where I start, and that's my my fortress, if you will. Um, though I want, I, I genuinely want to allow that to be question, questioned. I don't want to say fortress as if um, I don't I don't let, let that be questioned because I do. I want it to be questioned. When I read Bart Ehrman's how Jesus became God, I was like, wow, this has some good points that I had to mull over and read about. So w- one last thing real quick. Um, um, I think it's also key to see when when discussing why doesn't an Old Testament passage um, completely uh, defeat my faith, like two quick things that really make me wary of doing, of letting that defeat my faith is Jesus seems to repudiate the Old Testament at multiple points. Um, like eye for an eye, he he pretty much explicitly repudiates that. Paul and other gospel writers will reinterpret prophecy, and it seems obvious that they knew they were reinterpreting prophecy. So there is a sort of fastness and a looseness. They use uh, Old Testament literature that makes modern-day evangelicals very uncomfortable. But what means to me, what, what that says to me is I don't have to uh, lock down on the Old Testament, Testament if they didn't either. And they didn't even have the reason to, they're not trying to escape a problem necessarily. So um, that that's why these Old Testament defeaters seem very weak for defeating the sort of Christian faith I have. Sure. I, so the question I was going to just kind of follow up with uh, is sure. if, you, if you think that you can get history um, from any part of the Old Testament, is there is there any part that you think is reliable enough to say, yeah, I could, I could write a history text based on this. Um, the Old Testament is probably what I know the least amount about, but I, I definitely think you can, I mean, well, first of all, some things are just simply corroborated from, uh, from it. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think you can, I think historians do use it as another source, but very tentatively like any other really ancient document. Okay, well, would you say that the percentage of information you can use from the Old Testament as history is uh, greater, less, or the same as the percentage of, say, the Gospels and Acts that you can use? I would say it's less. Okay. All right. So um, let me just touch on a couple of uh, of examples. uh, Just real quick, the reason – one of the main reasons to say it's less is because the Old Testament is a much larger work. 
uh, written over a much larger period of time versus uh, and a lot of times about events that were long past. And uh, that's not true of, uh, you know, the Gospels. Right. But one would still think that because it's a bigger work and most of it is uh, in dealing in history, <laughs> uh, that more of it would be historical. <laughs> so I mean, you've got um, 12 books of history. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, and I, of, I'm not the, saying it's not a lot of historical. the prophets, uh, the minor prophets and the major prophets, that's 17 books right there that should be considered historical. Uh, you only have five books of poetry. Uh, so I, I mean, percentage wise, I would think that you would have more things that you could point at historicity for. Um, I mean, I don't know if percentage wise that makes sense because I feel like the gospels are more like a history the entire time versus, you know, the Psalms and stuff like that. Uh, right. But if, if you threw the Psalms out, you've got the Pentateuch, which deals with uh, things that seem to purport to be history. You've got the next 12 books, which are all dealing with history. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, throughout the five books of poetry, you've got the major and minor prophets. You've got 34 books that you should be able to consider historical. And I'm not saying they're all rubbish. I'm just saying if something is overturned for other reasons, uh, it doesn't completely surprise me or, or ruin my faith. Okay. So um, let me just touch on some of the um, uh, three of the deal breakers that I that I pulled sure. out here just to get some response because uh, once again, I do I do have sympathy, uh, believe it or not, toward uh, towards your thesis here. Okay. So I don't want to throw mm -hmm. out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, sure. And I know that we're kind of debating this a bit. I, I just want to pull back and say, yeah, but I'm, I'm still considering the other side of it too. Although I, I completely disagree with you with regard to uh, history in the, in the uh, gospels. I'm still, what I'm I still like about throwing this game, out though, your, your, your whole, your whole argument yeah. here. Well, what I like about this is now we know what to debate, you know, now we can debate the, the historicity of the new Testament. Um, that, that's what I like about some of these larger epistemological debates is it helps you actually figure out where the disagreement lies and avoid the ships passing in the night that happens so often. Sure. And so this is, um, this is why I want to start my deal breakers in the New Testament. But but you're fine to use Old Testament stuff too oh, for this episode. Oh, don't worry, I will. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying generally speaking, I like how it, I like when you can start to really figure out how our knowledge is is pieced together. Right. Okay. So the first one, and I I'm sorry for the listener. I didn't cite. Um, the scripture references, I just don't care anymore. It's your Bible. Read the damn thing yourself. I'm the same, man. I'm terrible about knowing exact um, words. So. I, I do. I, so the, here's the thing. I do know where a lot of the stuff is, or or I can find it easily. But uh, it, it it galls me that Christians don't read their own Bible. This is your Bible, people. It's not my Bible. <laughs> um I think it's BS. Why, why do I know it better than you? Okay, granted, I lived most of my life in it <laughs> but still when i was there it's not like i found a lot of christians who knew it very well um and i was around uh by and large christians who did have a fundamentalist view of the bible uh and thought it was the word of god they still didn't read it um 
no forgiveness without blood. So this is, uh, this is actually from Hebrew. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you folks a start there. You can, you can start flipping pages in Hebrew. Better yet, you can just look up, you can Google no forgiveness without blood, uh, and uh, it'll, it'll jump right up at you. In fact, if you do no forgiveness without blood space Bible, I, I, I suspect you'll get the exact passage. Uh, that's how good Google is. Uh, so, and by the way, Bing, same thing, same thing. Good. Um, so this idea... Uh, and this is a discussion that uh, the Hebrew uh, writer has. Hebrew, by the way, one of those strange books that nobody knows who who wrote. Uh, people used to say, "Oh, Paul." Almost certainly not Paul. Yeah, almost certainly not Paul. But they, the the reason, little known fact uh, for you, textual criti- uh, criticism walks. The only reason Hebrews is in the New Testament is because it was uh, determined at the time that Paul wrote it. If they knew what we know today, <laughs> it would not be in the Bible. So uh, there's one for you. Um, probably shouldn't be in the Bible. But um, at any rate, it is uh, in the Bible. And a lot of uh, systematic theology uh, bridging the Old Testament to the New Testament comes from the book of Hebrews. And so Christians can't really throw it out today, even uh, those who would want to. And uh the passage that I am referring to, actually, you probably have it in front of you by now, um, Robert. But actually, uh, that reading makes a link, a, a bridge to the sacrificial system uh, of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, and uh, what we have or what they had uh, then at the time, um, the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And uh, the writer says almost, you know, kind of matter, matter-of-factly that um, uh, almost everything is cl- uh, cleansed uh, by blood. And, uh, you know, he goes on to say that nothing, uh, there, there can be no forgiveness without blood. Just, just as kind of a, a matter-of-fact state-of-the-union kind of thing to say. Everybody knows this. Um. And I bring this one up first because it is something that is brought over very specifically from the Old Testament, this Old Testament idea, to the New Testament. You know, we had the sacrifice of blood and bulls and goats. Uh, you know, the blood, that's the life of the person. We, you know, the blood's very important. And uh, as we know, there can be no forgiveness without blood. And this this very notion that uh, that Christianity... Not just Judaism, because I'm I'm not debating Judaism, but Christianity, also based on this idea, uh, is still at its roots uh, a blood cult, uh, where where people barbarically uh, see uh, that the only way, the only way to make things right in the grand scheme of things is that something has to bleed and die. Uh, I cannot get on board with this. And, uh, you know, we, we can have a conversation about why I can't get on the board with this, but I think that it is um, readily apparent for most people. And I would say that just starting there, this is a deal breaker for me. This is not, this is not a religion to be taken seriously. This is a cult to be avoided at all costs. Yeah, so I'm actually trying to find that exact verse. Um, this is in Hebrews, yeah, you said? I'll give it to you. You can just talk for a minute. Okay, sure. 
So um, the first thing to say is, as I've gone through my journey of doubt and belief and all that, um, I had a document I would use sometimes of like kind of current issues, like what's bothering me the most to sort of map out where I'm at. And for the longest time, uh, the violence and brutality of the Old Testament was the biggest issue. And the most important thing starting out here is to say that I'm all about trying to be as honest about the data as possible. So never I for that entire like 10 year period, I never said, oh, this violence and brutality, it's not that bad. Like I knew it was bad. I was like, this has to be dealt with. So that that gave me this place that put me in this place where I was holding two things in tension. Um, I didn't think it overwhelmed the case for Christianity, but it was a big question mark. Um, I, over the past couple of years, I feel like I have a much stronger understanding of a plausible resolution. And um, the main thing I will cite for this is a theologian named Greg Boyd. He wrote this book called Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Uh, it's an academic book, over a thousand pages long. Long. I read the whole thing. It's actually very readable, though. E- even though it's long, it's very readable. I highly recommend it. And what I'm going to do in um, the my blog when this posts is uh, include a link to his three sermon series when he gives an overview of his thesis, because I think it's very compelling. And it's not brand new. It's not just this escape of these tough things in the Old Testament, and obviously, as David shows, it carries over to the new. Um, I think it provides a coherent framework for understanding uh, inspiration and how God deals with humans. So that that's my background here. Um, so David, you're saying it's 922. I have it pulled up right here. Let's see. I think this is this is the NIV. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Yeah. This, um, let me just acknowledge yeah. this is a uh, one piece of a longer reading, it just yeah. it doesn't get better when you add the context. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't use it if it if it changed it uh, significantly. This is a longer reading that kind of rolls in uh, the law and um, sacrifices and then so forth. Just people yeah. sit down and take five minutes and read a piece of your Bible. So we'll see if this verse changes. Uh, what I'm about to say, uh, because I'm not as familiar with that exact passage. But so Greg Boyd and my view, and this is something I really had before Greg Boyd as well, is I have a pretty robust view of progressive revelation. I just think looking at the Bible objectively, there is this clear progression. And in fact, what it seems like to me as a Christian is it seems like um, God chose these people who were just like their neighbors. They were just another tribal group. And he basically took on the role as their God. And originally, um, they were essentially polytheists, probably. They they saw him as just a God, uh, and the Babylonians had their God, whatever. Um, and eventually, he, drew, he, he brought them out of the fog over you know, hundreds of years, ultimately, to the perfect revelation in Jesus. And one of the strongest points of Greg's book is it shows how the New Testament itself teaches that Jesus is the only way to measure a revelation of God, that it is the bar none example of who God is, and that nothing can um, compete with it. 
And this is very different than modern-day evangelicals. Modern-day evangelicals tend to simply hold the Bible—basically, the Bible and Jesus are kind of on par with each other. And I would say the Bible itself doesn't teach that. I think Greg makes a very compelling case that uh, if anything conflicts with Christ on the cross, you throw out the other thing. So um, just to give an example of how you can map this progression, this progressive revelation, I think blood sacrifice is a great example. So— What's interesting is early on, this is in Leviticus 17, um, God says to them, you can no longer sacrifice to your goat idols out in the wilderness. So the, the Israelites would go out and sacrifice to these goat idols. He says, sacrifice to me. So um, this is God first. His first step here is to to get them to redirect this act. And I would view it that God ultimately does not even want these sacrifices, but he he is slowly accommodating to this tribal group of people, and he's accommodating to them without lobotomizing them, so uh, or uh, over um, bulldozing their free will. So anyway, he says you can't sacrifice to these goat idols. Uh, then later it talks about how God enjoys the aroma. Uh, of the sacrifices. But this is what's interesting. All the sacrifices in the ancient Near East, it was assumed that the gods, it would actually describe the god eating the sacrifice. It was supposed to be food to the god. Interestingly, the Hebrews never described that. So they were already kind of one step better. He liked the smell, but he didn't eat it. But then you get a little later, and I forget which Old Testament prophet said this, uh, you'll probably know, David, but uh, all of a sudden you have God now saying he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Is it in Isaiah? Do you know where that yeah, is? It sounds like Amos. Okay. So so now God is all of a sudden kind of putting sacrifices aside a little bit, but then what do you get with Jesus? You get this final sacrifice and the end entirely of the sacrificial system. Now, so you can see this map all the way up to where with Christianity, the the animal sacrifices are completely done away with. Now, you there is one huge point, and I know it's exactly what you're thinking of right now, David, is, okay, but is Jesus on the cross still a blood sacrifice? And is that what God is, it still seems like God is demanding blood. Um, I would posit yep. a different view of the atonement. I think Jesus was a Trojan horse, and this goes way more with the ransom theory of atonement, which is arguably the oldest theory, and it is uh, much more of a Christus Victor view of the atonement, um, if people have heard of that. And it's the idea that in this this gets mysterious. I, I'm going to play the mystery card, and I, I can defend why I think I can play it, but um, it does get mysterious, but I think through the fog, what we can see happening is God fake paying the devil. So the devil, I think, is the one that demands a blood sacrifice, ultimately. The evil one desires violence. He, he the, and the Bible teaches that other idols, you know, there's, there's demons behind those idols at demanding human sacrifices. And so ultimately, it's the devil and these demonic forces that want these blood sacrifices and violence. And God offers up Jesus, says, okay, you want this? Here you go, but he's a Trojan horse. And how that worked exactly, even the Bible itself is not totally clear on, but it's, it's very clear, like in Paul, that that is what dismantled the evil forces. And Paul says that if the evil forces knew what was going to happen, they wouldn't have taken the bait, but they did take the bait. So I don't think 
Um, I uh, am not a penal substitutionist. Um, I'm a sub- I do believe in substitutionary atonement, uh, but I don't think God needed blood to fix it all. I think God forgave us and used Jesus as a Trojan horse to save us. All right. So I'm just going to uh, shortcut my response and say you're right the first time. Uh, when you said yes, Jesus is a perfect uh, example of God still needing blood, and let's let's just say uh, I'm wrong about this. Me and about uh, four fifths of all Christians are also wrong about it, uh, because that's the, that's the Christian faith that that is preached from uh, the Catholic Mass. That's the Christian faith faith that's preached from the uh, Baptist pulpit. That's the Christian faith that uh, pretty much. Everybody except a few people uh, like yourself would know. As far as the progressive revelation, I'll I'll um, not say much on that. I've debated Randall Rouser twice uh, on on that here on Skeptics and Seekers. At least that that was um, the main part of the debate. At least one of the discussions in a secondary part of the debate uh, in the discussion. I don't think he did that well. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Randall Rouser is a um, a sitting theologian, and he's smarter than me. But I I just think that there's too much in the Bible uh, that pushes back against that. And because I know that you have a hard stop coming up, and we haven't really touched on a lot of other things, I'm I'm just I'm gonna have sure, to sure. I'm gonna have to let that dangle. Yeah, focus on what you care about the most, and I can stretch a little. Well, no, I, I I care about this too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just I. Oh, um, uh, so, and I, I agree this should be uh, debated, and this is where I really resonate with you, David, that I'm not going to say, yeah, God you know, just wants blood and we should be cool with that. It's like uh, I, we should not simply be cool with that. Maybe ultimately we have to accept that, but I'm not going to turn a blind eye to that. I, it, let, me, it, let me just say that if that is what the Bible is saying, and I do believe that that is what the um, – Bible is saying from page one uh, through the end, from page one, uh, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Uh, God is already demanding blood. Uh, he's he's starting off that way. Um, to the end page where almost everybody who ever lived uh, gets burned in hell uh, in the book of Revelation. So from page... In the most metaphorical book of the from, entire Bible. From, but from page one to page... Uh, you know, Omega, uh, we have the the death slash blood uh, lust ritual played throughout. And in this one place where, you know, it's in the middle of a longer th- systematic discussion, it's just it's just put there matter of factly. Um, and so, yeah, if it, so, let's just say I, I feel like in Hebrews, he also says it. You never liked sacrifices. I think that's also a verse in Hebrews. So I'm going to have to dig into Hebrews yeah, a little bit. I would more. right. So I, there's there is much that I can say about that that I will leave. Okay. Me, but I, I would say I I acknowledge the point that you were trying to make. I do think that hermeneutically, though, uh, you are incorrect. Uh, that there's that God was never saying, "Don't sacrifice to me." It was it was so, actually it was actually a part of the law. They had to make these sacrifices. These sacrifices. Yes. Uh, no. I, I agree with that. I mean, this to me, this to take Greg Boyd's view, you do ultimately have to do away with inerrancy. Um, so I, I pretty much agree with that. And one other thing I'll say is, 
uh, Greg Boyd's thesis, um, when you hear a snippet of, you, it, everyone dismisses it just because it's, it's very foreign and it just doesn't, it sounds like you're trying to get out of a problem. But if you want to judge it, you need to listen to like at least a little bit of him to unpack it. I, but I, I've listened yeah. to hours of Greg Boyd. I have a oh, really? book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so I, I know, but I, I'm, I'm saying that for the listener more than anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would, well, I would agree. Uh, you know, a little taste of Greg Boyd is not the whole Greg Boyd, <laughs> right. but I can tell you what, if you drink a full glass of Greg Boyd, <laughs> you will go back and say, you know what? That taste was good enough after all. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think that you will suddenly change your opinion about, uh, Boyd. If you listen to, uh, after you listen to hours of him, and I and I suspect that my opinion won't change after I you know read his books, but um, yeah. So let's let's just say that I am correct about that, just for the sake of argument. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, let let's say that I have good reason to okay. think that this is what the Bible is saying. Gotcha. Can yeah. you understand why that would be a deal breaker? Um, I think you need a further step of sort of like some sort of going back to your your point about direct revelation and inspiration because even if um you say okay the, yeah the bible definitely teaches blood sacrifice which see once again i do kind of agree with you um i i do so what i think i'm trying to say is if you come to the conclusion that god truly does want violent sacrifices to satisfy um, his wrath, then yes, I can see that as a potential deal breaker. I would say it's still best to hear the whole case, all the data for Christianity and against. Uh, but yes, I can see why that can at least approach being, yeah, that's still the biggest issue for me. Okay. So that, that's, that's all we're doing here. I'm not, I'm not trying to deconvert yeah. you. Yeah, and, sure. <laughs> and hopefully you're not trying to reconvert me. Uh, Okay. (laughs) That's cute. Uh, Number two uh, of three. So uh, we're almost done here. Um, Lake of Fire. Uh, Yeah. Hell is a deal breaker. Uh, Now, I am fully aware of the machinations that new apologists have gone through, the the high wire act, the contortionist act that new apologists have gone through to create a kinder and gentler hell so that we don't have to deal with the traditional view of hell. And the whole thing seems to me to be an attempt uh, to put God in a kinder and gentler way so he doesn't look like a monster and so that hell isn't a deal breaker for people like me. Because they full, they know full well uh, what eternal conscious torment in never-ending flames looks like. That's bad. We can't, we can't get around that. Now, as it happens, this is the hell I preached when I was a preacher. So this is not just some straw man that I'm latching on to to make Christianity look bad. This is the hell that I believed in the entire time that I was a Christian. And just just speaking about the Bible as literature, this is the hell that I believe that it is talking about even now. And I have seen all of the other arguments. Uh, I get it. Uh, but I think that uh, anyone preaching any other kind of hell is just wrong. Furthermore, I think that all of the other hells 
would be deal breakers too. <laughs> so people who are trying to create a kinder, gentler concept of hell to get God out of this problem aren't doing a very good job of it uh, at the end of the day. And so, uh, yeah, I would, I would fall back on almost a cliche that any God that maintains uh, a torture chamber uh, to soak his enemies in for all eternity uh, for finite uh, crimes is a monster. I don't need to hear the rest of the story, if that is true. I've said before that the hyper-Calvinistic view that God completely controls everything, and yet we are wholly responsible, which philosophically is nonsense, uh, but if that's true, and the ultimate fate is eternal conscious torment, that is one of the worst ideas possible. <laughs> so I am very sympathetic. I grew up very Calvinistic, and it always was. That was probably the number one issue for me was hell. Um, let me just first ask you, David, do you not buy the annihilationist argument? Not for a moment. <laughs> I, I I totally buy it. I mean, well, okay, I don't – I give it a high percentage let me or give, at let least – Let me give you just a real yeah. quick, quick – uh, yeah, reason yeah. why I don't buy it, it and any other of the versions of hell. Because Jesus, when he uh, talks about hell, uh, I'm not going to look at it up here, but you'll uh, re you'll remember the story when he's uh, saying, ah, but I was uh, lost and you, uh, you know, gave me shelter. You know, I was hungry and you gave me food. And, you know, when did I do that, Lord? Well, as much as you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. Uh, enter into, you know, a place of paradise. And he turns to the other group and says the same thing, except you didn't do unto me. And he's, they say, when did we see you like this? To the degree that you didn't do to the least of them, you didn't do it also to me. And so this is where you can find him saying, and uh, so <laughs> I'm going to uh, paraphrasing at this point, I'm going to send you to hell. Right. And he describes and gnashing of teeth. that, right? He describes hell as a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, all of the attempts to get around hell have to get around that description. So if you say, well, hell is just annihilation. Well, do you think that's what's uh, awaiting the devil and his angels? Then maybe your view makes sense in your worldview. But that is not, in fact, what most people think is awaiting the devil and the angels. Uh, and so Jesus promises us the same uh, punishment that was prepared for the devil and his angels. I believe that is eternal conscious torment. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I do reject uh, those types of attempts. One other little thing, by the way, if annihilation was all that we had in mind, uh, heck, uh, we skeptics think that we're going to die and stay dead anyway. That's right, not right. actually a punishment. And so to get to your annihilation, uh, annihilationism as a punishment, you would have to say that God is going to actually then dig us up, resurrect us, so that we can be judged and uh, get a list of all of our crimes, and then he's going to kill us again. And how is he going to kill us? Well, that ranges from, you know, he'll wink us out of existence to he will burn us in a pit for a long time until we die. It's still a horrible, horrible idea. It does not actually get God off the hook for being a monster. 
So yeah, you you obviously bring up some good points, um, and I already you know acknowledge that I sympathize and agree with uh, a good part of it. Like I, I I don't believe in the the eternal conscious torment um, for some of the same philosophical reasons. Um, you don't, I, I'm guessing, but um, I, I guess one thing um, that's helpful is that we are especially anything to do with the afterlife. I mentioned I was reading Dante's Inferno on the last uh, podcast and anything have to, has to do with the afterlife. We have to know has been horribly twisted throughout the years by Platonism, by the Catholic church, by Dante. Like we, I mean, what's crazy. Most Christians don't even know this, but the Bible almost never talks about the intermediate state. Uh, it, the New Testament, especially, well, no, the whole Bible, really, it's almost all about the resurrection. Um, and yet, Christians think there's all these fanciful descriptions of us hanging out in heaven. Um, and there's very little said about heaven, or even hell as an intermediate state. Uh, almost everything is about the final judgment. So right there, it shows how we're starting from all these preconceived notions. And that brings me to my second point, is that with this and also, what I talked about with theories of atonement, and even some of Greg Boyd's view, a lot of this, I'm trying to go back to uh, to clean out the muck of the past 1,500 years of theology and get back to some earlier stuff in a lot of these cases. And this is an example of getting rid of the Platonism that says we are all eternal souls. Um, that's not really a Jewish idea. It's a Greek idea. So, um I think there are some problematic passages for the annihilationist position. I think the biggest problematic passage is in Revelation, which we already talked about is the most metaphorical book there is anyway. Um, but I, I think, um, it, you know, it would take a whole episode probably to argue. I know there's actually been some discussion of having an episode on hell. Right. But, I'm trying um, to put that together. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who would be a good um, person to bring on for that. Uh, preferably someone who actually believes in hell. Right. <laughs> so, so I've got to find someone who's willing to admit to that on a mic. Right, right. <laughs> um, I, I think Teddy does. <laughs> she sounds very willing. <laughs> I don't know. She's uh, back and forth on it. I mean, maybe there's a hell. Maybe God's just uh, screwing with us. Uh, but very know. briefly, just to give it back to you so you can give the third point. Sure. Um, uh, the biggest thing for the annihilation position is uh, the Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul. That's very hard to find in the Bible. Most things are very against that idea that humans are not innately immortal. Uh, the second thing is that like nine out of 10, if not 49 out of 50 descriptions of the end of like of damnation are words that mean death, that mean ending, that describe uh, burning up. For instance, like even uh, Gehenna, I'm sure you know this, David, was mm -hmm. the trash heap, you know, outside of Jerusalem. And when you threw trash in that, it burns up. And the whole point of saying the fire is burning forever is that it's this it's this permanent ending point. But when you went out to Gehenna and threw your uh, trash in that fire, which was burning forever in actual Jerusalem, it burned up. So, but the biggest argument I think is against the immortality of the soul, and that most of the descriptions of the end for the damned uh, use words that don't imply continued existence 
and we're importing that. There are problematic passages, and that would take a longer debate for sure. Yeah, I'm going to hold my responses for the comments. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but trust me, I do. It sounds like you were uh, maybe uh, raising your hand to say uh, maybe you'd like to sit in on that discussion on hell when I put it together. Uh, we'll see uh, what yeah, I can do. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, for, maybe uh, if we can find someone who believes in it. <laughs> right. Um, so, number three. Um, this is a, a compound one, not a big one, but it, moral intuition. Uh, I, I kind of wrap up a lot of things uh, in moral intuition. Uh, now, I, I often say that uh, the God of the Bible is not a moral God, and I'm not even saying he's immoral. I'm saying he's amoral. He does not care um, about morality. He does not say, follow me because I'm moral, or follow me because I'm good, or be moral, uh, no, I am powerful and you should follow me, uh, because of that, you should be subservient. Um, that's, that's a short hand to a much longer, uh, discussion. Uh, but I would say that when we do get a, a peek at what God considers to be good, his moral intuition, uh, it is, uh, wildly different from my moral intuition. Uh, it is so different from my moral intuition that there are very few places in the Bible where I can look at the actions and words of this God and say, oh, okay, that's that's a good thing. Most of the activity of this God sits in the on, on the evil end of the spectrum for me. The, the moral intuitions are just that foreign from me. And as a result of that, I would have to call that a deal-breaker in aggregate. So there are lots of little things mm -hmm. that I can go into and I'm, I'm going to spare the audience of, um, going through a litany of things, read the blog. Um, we can, we can talk about it in the uh, comments, but yeah, tons of little things. I'm not sure if you have read Dan Barker's book. I'm not, I know uh, who he is. Okay. Uh, he has written a book. I, I don't have the name of it in front of me. Uh, but he wrote it, uh, because, um, of a, a thing that Richard Dawkins uh, had said, and I, I think Dawkins had called Barker to uh, to ask him uh, to just kind of write an introduction. Right? But uh, Dawkins had uh, made a speech where he put to, he strung together about nineteen invectives <laughs> <laughs> against uh, God, and um, you know uh, uh, Dawkins is not a theologian. Uh, but he called Barker to see if uh, Barker would, you know, maybe write him an introduction and, you know, fact check, biblical <laughs> check that. And so Barker got to work on it and he ended up writing a book <laughs> and, nice. and, uh, and he added a few more descriptions uh, to it as well. Um, almost every page of the Bible uh, during certain parts of it, just have this God behaving uh, like a monster. And if you ever read the Bible, I mean, really read it, uh, these things just pop out in, in their shocking, uh, in their repetitive, in, in their, their, their horribleness, the grossness, uh, of, of some of it. It, it, no one who behaved this way or thought this way in modern times would be considered good. We would put them in a straitjacket. Um, 
this is the God that the Bible presents. And you can say, well, you know, these people weren't really speaking for God. But as far as I'm concerned, these are God's biographers. God should have chose better ones. Uh, if, this isn't, if this isn't who God is, it's not my fault for thinking that he's a monster. Because this is uh, who wrote about him. And they put it in a book uh, that, I'm, that I'm told I can learn uh, things about God uh, from. And so uh, just the entire oeuvre of what we would consider God's moral intuition is just too foreign of a thing for me to consider to be someone that I would want to follow. It's a, it's a total deal, deal breaker. So I think if you take a strong view of inerrancy and you place everything that happens in the Old Testament that God especially directly does— and try Just take ten percent of it. Sure, ten percent sure. is still it's still too much. And yeah, you put it with Jesus. I mean, you just number one, you kind of end up with a contradiction because um, it doesn't seem like the Jesus on the cross we know would do some of those things, or even come close to doing some of those things. Uh, and I would agree is a potential deal breaker. So I, but I would question that whole logical. Uh, flow of of the inerrancy and all that sort of stuff. I, I think to have a um, satisfying, um, compelling view of Christianity, you do need some form of progressive revelation, something like what Greg Boyd describes, which once again, just just point this out, Greg Boyd is relying a lot of I, on ideas from people like Origen, like the church father. So it's not all just these new things he's trying to do to get out of, uh, get out of jail free. But um, yeah, no, I, I think if you take, and I, I know you're responding to a lot of your sitting in the pew Christians today. And I think you're right for that to be at least a p- potential deal breaker. But I don't ultimately think that argument goes through. Okay, but this is these types of things that I'm talking about. Uh, you know, the tenth plague, uh, David's trilemma. Uh, what, what is David's trilemma? I wasn't sure what that was. Uh, yes, David's trilemma. Uh, this is a particularly nice bit of nastiness. It's where uh, David took a census. We can uh, go back and forth on whether David, uh, whether da- uh, the devil tempted David to take the census, or whether God told David to take the census. The Bible actually says both. Um, But David took a census. It was ostensibly against God's uh, law to do so. And so God is going to punish David. And so he sends uh, a uh, prophet uh, to tell David what his punishment would be. And uh, in comic book uh, villain fashion, uh, he gives David a choice of punishments. So one punishment, and now I'm going to get uh, I'm going to get these wrong a little bit, but it's in, it's in this vein. So one mm-hmm. punishment is like um, three years of famine, you know, uh, and so a certain number of his people are just going to starve to death. And then another uh, punishment would be like okay, three months of being harried by his enemies. Uh, and you know they're going to be able to overrun him for three months, or another punishment would be like um, three three days of God sending His death angel 
to just slaughter people in, in, uh, in under David's rule. So David has to bowl over which one of these things he's going to give. Lovely. Now, frankly, all of these things are utterly monstrous. Um, David took a census. Let's just say that that was the wrong thing to do. So what? None of these punishments fit the crime. This is God saying, I'm going to punish the innocent people. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to punish you by making you um, emotionally suffer as you watch these innocent people die. <laughs> this, is, this is the trilemma that he gives. By the way, David chooses the last one because he says something to the effect, Lord, I trust your mercy. I will take the last one. Uh, your death angel can come to my people. So God unleashes the death angel monster and the destruction, the slaughter is so bad. God calls him off early. <laughs> this is how bad it is. And wow. so uh, at the end of that, I want to say 70,000 of the citizens were destroyed with this with this crazed death angel. This is uh, David's trilemma. Sorry, um. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a part. Of, you're in a, a larger uh, point you were making. I, I think I threw you off there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, so uh, no problem. Tenth plague. David's trilemma. Uh, love the uh, love the story of the uh, kids being uh, torn up by she bears because they uh, were saying made fun of his bald head. Go up your bald head. That'll get you killed. Um, any uh, the Abraham test, uh, any of a number uh, of things. I would say uh, putting a tree of death uh, in the middle of the Garden of Evil uh, that wasn't very good. Uh, not allowing, uh, I'm sorry, not putting better security in the garden and letting Satan come down and tempt uh, the innocent man and woman. That's bad. Um, look, there's any number of terrible evil things this God does. Don't even get me started on the war doctrine of this God. Um, they're all bad. Any one of them is a deal breaker by itself. Any one. If you just say, well, but most of this isn't true. If you, if one of them is true, it's over. It's over. We're done. Yeah. I, I just, um, I'm, I'm trying to, treat the Old Testament as in its era and in its worldview um, and and removing the the chains of inerrancy kind of uh, it's certainly not putting it on par with the revelation of God in Christ okay, on the I cross I don't even care about the whole inerrancy. I'm, I'm exhausted with inerrancy yeah. versus inerrancy um, oh don't get me wrong I'll debate it some other time um, <laughs> but um, it doesn't matter. I think that you. I think that you think it matters more than it actually does, because the point is, the people who wrote the Bible are the kind of people who thought this stuff was okay, and the people mm -hmm. who read the Bible and followed this God, whether the stories were fictional or not, are people who thought that it was okay, and then the New Testament authors who then uh, synchronized Christianity on top of Judaism thought this stuff was okay. Not all of them, though. I mean, Jesus repudiates a lot of it. Uh, he goes in his own direction. The enemy becomes spiritual rather than human. I mean, it's not a, a blanket acceptance. Uh, okay, uh, I, I will, I will accept that 
partially. I, let, I, let me give you so. um, <laughs> a, a story that, that Greg gives, and I want you to tell me if it's compelling at all for a, a way of understanding all okay. that. I can tell um, you it is not. There is zero things <laughs> yeah. that Greg has said that I find compelling okay. in the least bit, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, it's still a very interesting story. So he, this is a true story. I think it was in the 80s. This missionary couple went to some tribe somewhere. Um, I, I don't think Greg um, he gave the details, but um, the point is this tribe was practicing uh, female circumcision, which is obviously uh, a brutal practice. And it, it, it uh, tore up these missionaries to see this happening. Um, but they also were new to this tribe, and there was basically no way to simply stop them from doing it without, I don't know, bringing in the military or something. So what they did is they did the next best, best thing they knew to do, which was to help them do it cleanly, for instance. Uh, so to like to introduce antibiotics, stuff like that. Then over time, as they introduced the gospel and got to know them, and some of them converted to Christianity, they were able to convince them to stop that practice. Um, but this is a key thing. If you were an outsider looking at this, you would see this missionary couple helping them perform female circumcision. You wouldn't see them crying on the inside uh, for these girls, uh, but you would simply see them. It, it almost looks like they're even promoting it. But what they were actually doing the entire time was working to get them off of this practice. Greg says that's what God is doing with Israel. And Greg is batshit crazy, <laughs> um, and 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 a lousy theologian. So I would I would be very careful to follow in Craig's um, uh, in Greg's. We might uh, have to footsteps. do a, a crucifixion of the warrior god episode, and I can come on and defend. Ab you. Absolutely, hey! <laughs> if you can convince him to come on to my little show and uh, have it out with me, I will be glad to punch <laughs> his face in uh, because he should not be saying the types of things that he's saying. Uh, it's it's terrible epistemology and it's terrible theology. It's bad on. Well, I think toast. we need uh, more time for you to describe why. Uh, but uh, yes, but, uh, but, to, uh, but let me get, just give ahead. you briefly why the story uh, is not compelling, and maybe this will give you a little bit of a, a taste of it. Uh, so, very simply, I'll, I'll use a very basic example. The same God who was uh, so reticent uh, about. Um, telling people don't own other people as slaves, um, had no problem uh, telling people don't eat shellfish. Uh, he had no problem saying, don't you dare, don't you dare, perhaps on the pain of death, don't you dare wear clothes with mixed fabrics. He had no problem uh, with saying, oh, uh, those of you who uh, practice homosexuality, you will die. He had no problem with saying, take women who are guilty of witchcraft, an imaginary crime, and burn them at the stake. He had no problem with that. But, but he, he had to tiptoe around their sensitivity about circumcision. Are you kidding me? Th this makes no sense whatsoever. This is a God who takes an old man, I want to say his name was Uzzah, the ark was getting ready to tip over as David was carrying it, and uh, it was it was tipping, and the old man was there, probably a priest to be uh, close as close to the ark as he was, and he reaches up to steady it because it was about to fall over. You know what God did for that act of kindness? 
kill him on the spot because it was illegal to touch the ark with your bare hand. This is the monster that we're talking about. This is the guy that you think is weeping on the inside for all of that circumcision. You've got to be kidding me. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, the Uzzah with the ark is a, a weird case, but I think taking on this Greg Boyd model, I don't think God zapped him. I don't think that's what actually happened. That's what the Israelites understood it as, um, just like the natives with the people helping them do the circumcision. Um, So I I think there is this larger question of why didn't God invade their thoughts more to fix more things? Um, And perhaps that's a very, you know, that's a valid question. Um, Over time, he did, leading all the way up to Jesus. Um, But there's just multiple ways you can map out this progression and this accommodation. Accommodation is a key way of looking at it. Like, um, this is, uh, is how Randall Rouser, what, what you're describing is how Randall Rouser thinks. Okay. So you're in, you're in good company there. Um, All right. Well, like, so like the Israelites want, want a king and God says, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. And they are, and they're like, well, we really want a king. And so he accommodates and even tries to make it work. Um, it doesn't work, but he, he doesn't, uh, he's willing to work with the people he has. And then Jesus says, uh, you know, when they ask him about divorce and Jesus says, uh, the reason why Moses gave you that law back then was because your hearts were too hard. So Jesus is affirming the same idea that the Israelites weren't ready for the truth. Uh, they were; it would uh, lobotomize them for God to just invade their thoughts and fix everything. You would just be bulldozing their free will, and so God had to choose a longer road. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I think go go go, go, go back three minutes and listen to my sermon. I'm, we could, yeah, we we could do a longer debate on yeah. this. Obviously, there's not enough time, um, and I, I do think it has to be debated. Yeah, I'm not trying to d- dismiss it by any means. Yeah, I I, I agree. And once again, I um, I don't want it to to sound like I think that your thesis is completely mad. Um, but I just want you to understand, uh, the other side of it. Uh, I, I think that there are plenty of times when the heuristic model makes sense in real life, but when we're talking about theology, well, you know what? I'll save it for my final speech. So why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and wrap up? Uh, give me, uh, give me a kind of, um, synopsis if you haven't already done it of, uh, of your thoughts, take uh, take two or three uh, minutes and uh, make a make a closing uh, speech here. Sure. Uh, well, one thing I'll point out is I want to applaud you on using a heuristic when it comes to the morality of the Old Testament. You were saying that it's when you take all these things in aggregate that it becomes so forceful that uh, you know it, it, uh, against. God being moral, at least with in- inerrancy and stuff, I would say. But anyway, um, I think you're at least partially using a heuristic there, rightly so. But uh, on my side, I mean, I don't know if there's a ton to sum up. Um, there is sort of the first half of this whole discussion, which is epistemology. And um, I think there is a lot of agreement there. Um, you might disagree with exactly how I use it, David, but it does sound like there's a fa- fair amount of agreement. And I would just, you know, direct people to my blog uh, and podcast if they want 
bigger, fuller explorations of those ideas. And I'm, I'm all about feedback. I want to put these ideas out there for them to be tested, like uh, submitting to a scientific journal um, to get feedback on. So let me know. Uh, my website is robertlwhite.net. Um, you can find my podcast and Twitter and stuff through there too. Uh, so there's a epistemology standpoint and then getting into the meat of it of actually evaluating the deal breakers you brought up, David. Um, and I think some are harder to deal with than others. Um, I think there are some compelling responses that I got to give perhaps previews of. Um, but even if you're a skeptic and you weren't uh, you didn't even think my preview had anything to it for these responses. I would still suggest just making sure to not be myopic. Take in all the data, even if what you think is a deal breaker still has the greatest weight and it uh, closes the door on Christianity. Fine, but I still I want to promote clear thinking, and I think clear thinking is involves a humble, appropriately humble epistemology and taking in all the data and making more of a forest level decision rather than a tree level decision, as I talk about in my podcast. And so, um, yeah, I'll just leave the listener with that. Okay. And uh, for my uh, closing remarks, I would say that uh, I think that there is a lot of place for uh, Robert's rule. Uh, his heuristic rules make a lot of sense and uh, you can use them uh, in your day-to-day life, and in fact, you do. So, uh, that said, they don't make as much sense when it comes to the Bible or theology. I I think that theology is a different realm entirely. Um, And we're dealing with laws of God and or rules for uh, living, not merely rules of thumb, but very specific uh, rituals such as baptism. Um, we're, we're dealing with things that, with thus saith the Lord's, do this and don't do that. And if you do this, this will happen. And if you don't do that, this will happen. We're dealing with very specific things. And so when it comes to theology, heuristic thinking doesn't really work. Um, it's it's kind of like uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, it's a sermon that uh, we used to preach a lot uh, in the denomination that I'm from. In fact, uh, lots of denominations did. God gave Noah very specific instructions about building the ark, uh, the type of wood, the measurements, uh, every detail. God uh, walked Noah through, and Noah did not have uh, the option to say, no, this would be better. You know, I don't see gopher wood over here, but there's a lot of pine. I think I'll use pine. Uh, Not worth it to go hunting gopher wood. No, theology doesn't work that way. It's very specific. You follow God specifically, uh, or there are specific consequences to pay. And so if we're going to take those sorts of things seriously, uh, then we have to read the Bible a little bit more carefully. Uh, and we can't uh, be tempted to use uh, heuristic thinking when there are thus saith the Lord and specific consequences at play. Otherwise, we are guilty of just inventing our own God. We're just creating our own God from what feels good to us. And we're making up our own religion. And why even call it Christianity? Uh, Just call it something else. 
because it's not the uh, God of the Bible, and it's not the doctrine of the Bible. It's not the specifics of the Bible. It's it's something else. And I would even argue that uh, Robert's religion is better than Christianity. Uh, don't sully it by calling it Christianity. Call it, call it something else. Um, but, yeah, we can't just use um, a kind of loosey-goosey, uh, take-it-or-leave-it, uh, buffet-style hermeneutic uh, when approaching theology. It just doesn't work that way in the same way that uh, Robert's rule works in other things. And so um, I want to give him credit where where it's due, but I would say... Um, I'm probably there are probably more Christians agreeing with me uh, than Robert when I say that we we should probably uh, use a heuristic model more sparingly when it comes to theology and parsing the Word uh, of God. Now, if you're willing to uh, toss the Bible aside, <laughs> um, uh, great, <laughs> go for it. By the way, I applaud you for that. The Bible is a terrible book. Um, let me go back on something I said. Don't read it. <laughs> Don't bother <laughs> reading it. It's, it's awful. Just make up your own damn religion, and uh, I will applaud you for it. I will give you plenty of space on Skeptics and Seekers to talk about it, because whatever religion you invent is going to be better than the one in there. Um, Let me just say, I try to start and end with Paul saying, I resolve to know Christ and him crucified. So that that is my start and ending point, and that's why I, I've— I yes. put the Bible in a separate in a different category than than a lot of other Christians. No, like your no Christ, sort of like no Christ, Him crucified. Forget about the blood sacrifice, though, and um, also forget about some of the details, like the you know the resurrection of Matthew twenty seven. Just kind of you know, no, what, whatever you want to put together, um, that's <laughs> that's fine, uh, and. So I, uh, I look just so the listener knows, this isn't an exact rep- representation of how that, I construct my theology. This is exactly what he said. <laughs> this is exactly. I just I just gave you an exact quote. Um, so um, yeah, I look forward to uh, the comments. Um, these are going to me be, too. These are going to be good comments this They're, week. They'll be juicy. Uh, Robert, I've got I've got an asbestos suit from the last guy. If you want to put it on, it didn't hold up very well. <laughs> but... <laughs> I keep it in the closet here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, look, next week uh, we've got some very good stuff uh, on the horizon. So I, I've, got a, I've got a lot of podcasts I'm doing. And I actually haven't made up my mind which one is going to air next. We've got David Kimball Cook waiting in the wings. We've got a couple of other people that you haven't heard of. Uh, in process is a podcast uh, with Andrew and... Uh, Darren, uh, to talk about transhumanism. Uh, I am looking forward to that one. Uh, that's going to be a great conversation. Darren, by the way, has also uh, wrangled uh, one of his friends to talk about substance dualism. So that's coming up uh, very shortly. Uh, so uh, a lot to look forward to. And then Titus will be uh, getting back from vacation. Uh, he popped in. Uh, for a visit, and he'll be, he's not exactly on vacation, he's on mission, but uh, we'll we'll be talking to him again soon. So we've got a lot um, in the works right now, a lot being recorded. Uh, I'm not going to say what's going to happen next week, because it just depends on how the spirit moves me. In the meantime, uh, stay tuned, uh, pop in the comments, skeptics and seekers, 
at squarespace.com. You can drop me an email, skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. How can we get a hold of you, Robert? Uh, just check out my website. There's a my email address is there, Twitter, everything, robertlwhite.net. And uh, Robert, uh, do we have a commitment from you to return to Skeptics and Seekers real soon to uh, talk to us again about many and sundry topics? Uh, yeah, I would love to be back on. It's nope. been uh, been a lot of fun so far, David. You heard it. That's a promise. We'll see you then, folks. Bye-bye. <laughs>